From PBS and Wired Magazine comes Wired Science, Wednesday, October 3rd at 8, 7 central on most PBS stations. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 3rd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Space, the Final Frontier. We'll talk about that, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. George Musser is our astronomy expert at Scientific American, and Stephen Ashley is our technology guru. Together, they created the special section in the October issue of Scientific American on the future of space exploration. To find out more, I sat down with them in the library at Scientific American. I'm here with Steve Ashley. How you doing, Steve? And George Musser. Hi, Steve. And uh, we have this special report that you guys co-created in the October issue of Scientific American on the future of exploring space. So what was the impetus for doing this kind of a survey now? Well, the real impetus is that we're, we've just come up to the 50th anniversary of the dawn of the space age. On October 5th, some people think it's October 4th, but actually it's October 5th, 1957, at 1.30 local time in the morning in Kazakhstan, the Sputnik, Sputnik 1 was launched, really kicking off the, the space age. So, uh, that's the past, but this, this is, this special section is, uh, concentrating on the future of space exploration. And you guys co-wrote a, a brief introduction to this section. And now you have uh, a couple of other pieces in there. Now, Steve, you edited this piece about uh, specifically related to the to the future of uh, moon missions. Yes, uh, I edited a piece that was written by several uh, NASA engineers and Lockheed Martin engineer on the Apollo Constellation program, which was which is going to be uh, the United States' next next attempt to send humans to the moon. And what are we going to do there? Still remains to be seen, Steve. Uh, I would say that uh, the point is is to try to establish a foothold on the earth, on the moon's surface, uh, allowing exploration over the long term and perhaps even exploitation of the moon, uh, lunar surface. Exploitation, minerals, anything that might be available there that could be of use back here? That'll be a little bit more in the future, but in the short term, you'll be able to do uh, science because you'll be outside of the Earth's atmosphere uh, which would uh, normally hinder observations, uh, various kinds of scientific experiments uh, will be made possible by this. So you could you could put a telescope on the moon. Exactly so. And that would give you the, the crystal clear images that we're used to now from the Hubble. Yes, but a much more stable platform, which allow better calculations, better observations, and perhaps new discoveries. Is this going to be kind of from scratch or are, are we going to take advantage of the things that we learned from Apollo? Well, that's an interesting point. Um, basically, the constellation of, uh, Orion uh, system is based on the Apollo moon mission system, which was sent up uh, decades ago. But basically, they're using off-the-shelf technology that's been updated with new technology and saving costs or the idea is to save costs along the way. I think uh, you said somewhere in the introduction to the whole section that the space the space shuttle is an ambitious spacecraft with limited goals, and now we're going to use limited spacecraft to try to perform ambitious uh, tasks. Well, the space shuttle was an amazing is an amazing aircraft that basically flies up into space and back down on wings. Um, the big thing about the uh, new 
Apollo, I'm sorry, <laughs> Orion uh, Constellation Program is it's going to be based on very much the old-fashioned, so to speak, Apollo uh, type of architecture where uh, boosters that are jettisoned after their use are used. So, in other words, you go up on one stage, that drops off, you go up on the next stage, and that drops off and finally into orbit. And at the end, you're not left with much of a craft, but it does work and it's proven and it's cheaper in general. And when will all this allegedly start taking place? When do we think we're going to start actually sending any of this stuff up? I believe it's going to start, uh, they'll be start some of the test work in around 2012, and then missions perhaps will start in 2015, depends. Now, George, you're the author of a piece that's kind of more philosophical, Five Essential Things to Do in Space. And uh, why don't we go through these point by point, and you can just sort of briefly summarize what's in the in the article. And uh, number one is monitor Earth's climate. And, and you talk about how we've really dropped the ball on this. Yeah, I should really clarify that the five things to do in space are fine scientific, planetary scientific. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're not talking about, you know, basketball in space. Exactly, exactly, which some people might consider legitimate. But this article focuses on the planetary science. Okay. So We're also five ne- scientific things to do in space. And let me qualify one more way, and that is I'm neglecting, and I know I'm going to get shot down for this by some people, things like the Hubble Space Telescope, some of the space telescopes that look beyond our solar system. We really wanted it in this section to narrow our focus to our solar system. Okay. But, so with those disclaimers, I can... So, no, that's important. So these are five essential things to do in space that are limited to our solar system. Right. Except for the last one to a degree, but we'll okay, get Okay, I snuck it in. Okay. So number one, monitor Earth's climate. Yeah, a lot of people don't think, first of all, that the space program bears on the Earth's climate, bears on the Earth. It's about space. It's beyond our planet, the moon, Mars, and those sorts of things. But I think if you ask most planetary scientists, why do we go to explore the planets, the number one reason they will give, the scientists themselves will give, is to understand our own planet. That's why we go to the moon, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, all these places, is to know our own planet better. So in this item number one I've given here, I'm talking really about sensors, detectors, satellites around our planet to understand the climate of our planet for obvious reasons. You point out, now I I had no idea about this, but some of our existing uh, orbiting infrastructure has decayed to the point where we've had to buy data from other countries, other countries that we probably helped put satellites into space for. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It should be an international program. But I think the complaint I'm raising here, and that which I hear from a lot of scientists, is that there's been this gap in planning for Earth monitoring satellites. There were some cost overruns, there were some budget cuts. The net result is they're really trying to eke out a lot of these satellites that are monitoring the climate. And the problem is if they go belly up before the replacement can fly, then you've got gaps in your data. You don't know, for instance, whether the solar illumination of the Earth is going up, it's going down, and obviously you need to know that to know about global warming and its effects. Right. If you have a gap in the data, you can't tell if there's been a continuous change in uh, solar intensity or whether you just have an instrument up there that's calibrated differently. Right. So the second item you have here is 
prepare an asteroid defense. Now, we've been hearing about this for a while. And what was it, about 10 years ago, the, the two big movies were made about Armageddon mm-hmm. and whatever the other one was called? Deep, uh, Deep, Impact. Deep Impact, right, with Tia Leone getting crushed by a humongous wave at the end while uh, while Maximilian Schell cradles her in his arms. Yeah, just Very like a good point. father should, yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, but this is a really interesting case because it is, it's almost literally pie in the sky. And yet, if that pie hits, if you, if you have the one in a million, uh, one per million year chance that something hits, well, then all your planning will really come into play because if you don't do it, it wipes out everything. Yeah. And we're not talking here. We should throw every dollar we have into this. It's just a prudent amount of insurance. For this kind of eventuality that isn't really being made right now. People have talked about it. You've heard a lot about it. You you expect the president to have someone who knows what to do if the call came, but they really don't. They don't have a plan. And you're talking when you say uh, you know prudent amounts of money. We're talking about a few hundred million dollars, right? Yeah, and even that's spread out over a number of years. And a hundred million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but when you think about what we're spending? Well, how much do we spend in Iraq every day? Oh, I won't go there. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure actually. Seven billion dollars a month. Seven billion a month from Steve Ashley. So a few hundred million dollars to try to just you know get a little idea about whether anything's coming that's going to wipe out perhaps an entire city or an entire continent or the whole planet. Might be it might be thought of as just a, a decent way to spend a little bit of money on insurance. Right. And, the, you know, the, the ones that take out a city or a city-sized region are fairly common. They don't happen every, every year. thousand years, right? I mean, so in the next century, it's a one in ten chance of happening, which is it's a sizable chance. And if you multiply its effect times that probability, you get a certain dollar figure and, you know, a billion dollars or whatever that turns out to be a year. Of, of effective damage, statistical damage. That's how much you should expect to be spending on your insurance policy. Absolutely. Do I don't this. know what the numbers are. You should check. Right, but the you do the same thing with your medical insurance. Exactly. And uh, again, you you might expect to get that one in ten chance over the next hundred years. It might not hit in an inhabited area, so that you you don't get that kind of destruction. But but then again, it might. Actually, it's interesting. The ones that hit in the ocean, even if they don't hit. N- a city are the most destructive because they set up a tsunami. And uh, do, do we know when the last time one of those might have happened? I mean, the, the Tunguska event is now thought to be one of these, right? Right. That's usually taken to be the the last major example. Right. Except in the movie Ghostbusters, but we'll, we won't go there. So uh, so you're just advising that, that we at least uh, do some serious thinking about spending a little bit of, of uh, our federal money on, you know, Putting an insurance plan into effect. Insurance plan, exactly. And one of the things you point out there that's very interesting is our current uh, system of detection can't really tell the difference between a small bright object and a big dark object. Yeah, and that's obviously a problem because you'd like to know what's coming in. There's also blind spots in the sky, areas our telescopes don't reach that well. And those blind spots you point out in the article are just where the most dangerous possible intruders might be. Because they usually lie in our orbit, and those are areas that are only visible to the ground-based telescope at, at dusk or dawn. Right, you get a lot of solar interference at right. that point. Right, right. So uh, item three, 
seek out new life and new okay we'll go there and new civilizations of single-celled organisms exactly i mean this is really the thing that got me personally interested in planetary science back when i was a kid it's the life life in the universe are we alone type of question and here we're we're talking really about life in a solar system we're talking about microbes on mars europa maybe in the oceans of europa People have talked maybe about past life on Venus and the atmospheres of Jupiter. Who knows? The point is there hasn't been a complete inventory of the places where life might be. And if we if we were to find even a small amount of microbial life on some other body, it would just be a compelling uh, piece of evidence that life is probably a, a natural consequence of a lot of natural uh, phenomena. And therefore might be common in the rest of the galaxy as well. And the other thing is, and this goes back to the point I had made earlier about studying other planets to study ourselves. You could use that other type of life as a point of comparison for understanding biology on Earth. Some of the weird aspects of biology on Earth might become more apparent if we had that point of comparison. What kind of weird aspects of life on Earth are you talking about? Well, things like the genetic code, how is that put together? Is is DNA or the type, particular type of amino acid chemistry essential to life, period? Or is it just kind of an artifact of the way life happened to emerge on Earth? We don't have any record of life on Earth prior to what, 3.8 or so billion years ago. What happened? How did life originate on Earth? There was some kind of precursor chemistry that had to take place. That precursor chemistry may also exist on Titan, for example. And we're we're doing some looking for for uh, that kind of information already, but we're talking about more sophisticated analysis. Right, and and the programs we're only talking about in the article are continuations of current programs. They're not a whole new set of things that haven't yet been done at all. The Cassini mission, Cassini-Huygens mission in the Saturn uh, system has been an example of doing that kind of search. And your your fourth item is explain the genesis of the planets. Now, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and this goes back even before life itself. How did you get planets, period, just in what used to be empty space of the galaxy? What caused these these things we call planets to form, and how did they form? And that period, again, of, of, of history, of cosmic history, is, isn't well known. The traces have been largely lost and have to be pieced together by a lot of lines of evidence. And there's whole areas of the solar system to explore that will help us gain more evidence. For instance, looking into comet nuclei, going to Venus and getting some kind of sample of of a rock on Venus. Um, Understanding more about Jupiter and its role, for example. Getting a sample of anything on Venus is a pretty, uh, pretty terrifying technological task. I mean, realistically, getting a sample of any planet. The moon, even. I mean, look how many billions were spent on getting those moon rocks back. Mars, they still don't have a sample from actually collected on the surface of Mars and brought back to Earth. We have meteorites that we think came from Mars, but not actual known samples from sample locations. And those samples are absolutely crucial. Even a single rock, even a single scrap of a rock can give you the isotopes, the chemistry, the information you need to to determine the history of that entire world. And that's what we need for Venus as well. And your fifth item, break out of the solar system. I put this one in partly for fun because I 
I personally think would be wonderful to, for humanity. It's part of our destiny somehow to break out of the solar system and enter the rest of the galaxy. But also there's real important scientific mysteries and problems to be solved out there. How does our sun and its planetary retinue plug in to the galaxy? How does it relate to the magnetic fields, the particles, the gases that surround our solar system? The solar system is not merely a a human construct. There is actually a boundary out there where there are different kind of phenomena going on between what's inside the boundary and what's outside the boundary. Exactly. There is an objective sense in which you can talk about the solar system and the domain of the sun. And there's different boundaries you can draw. There's boundaries of its, the sun's gravity. There's boundaries of the sun's magnetic fields. The one that's really most relevant here, though, is the boundary of the sun's particles. So the sun is blasting out particles, like, you know, elementary particles, protons and so forth. And they're blowing out like a wind. It's called the solar wind. And there's an incoming interstellar wind of a sort caused by the motion of our our solar system through the galaxy, sort of like the headwind of a car or a motorcycle. And where those two collide and meet and come to a standstill, it's considered, in a sense, the, the boundary that most interest science, scientists today. Yeah, there's there's a, an equilibrium point somewhere out there where the stuff coming in is meeting the stuff going out. Right. And a lot of interesting things happen there that have relevance again to Earth. The cosmic rays that might influence our climate might either be generated from that region or be modulated by it. So it's a, uh, it's kind of a grand, uh, research agenda that you've, you've put forth here. And, uh, you know, in the big picture, it's really not all that expensive. No, I mean, these scientific programs are, are fairly modest when you consider that they're spread out over time. I mean, a billion here, a billion there adds up to real money. Right, as Everett Dirksen famously said. Oh, I thought it was my my quote. No, so we're talking not insubstantial amounts of money, but we're talking about doing it over 20, 30 years. Well, uh, gentlemen, where do you think, you know, you, you, you end the whole piece by talking about, you know, our what we're going to look back on in 2057 as uh, having been accomplished. Let's... Let's bring it a little closer to home. Where do you think we're going to be in 10 years? I mean, this is sort of a hackneyed, bad journalist's question. But do you think, I mean, obviously, it all depends on what we decide to do now. Mm. But where do you think the political and scientific will is right now? And where will that lead us, let's say, in the next decade or two? Steve, I think you could expect the uh, NASA bureaucracy to generate enough money through the Congress to probably start some moon missions again. Uh, they'll be working off of the solar, I'm sorry, the uh, space station, and then jumping off to the closer planets, perhaps uh, some more uh, uh, Martian rovers will be you know, landing by that time, hopefully, uh, or at least being shot off toward the, the, the planets by then. Uh, I think then you also will see some more... Uh, uh, new kinds of technologies where they're going to be using, uh, plasma rockets increasingly, which are basically shooting out tiny ions, uh, to, uh, slowly accelerate space, spacecraft far distances at eventually very high ra rates of velocity. Um, the point is that 
by 20 years, we'll have had a, a several probes out there and seeing things that we have not seen before. And perhaps we'll have people on the on the moon and people on Mars in 2030. Yes or no? That I'd be surprised. Yeah, I think even NASA's projections don't have it until the late 2030s. Guys, uh, it's a really fun section. Uh, I think everybody enjoy reading it, and it's available free on our website. That is correct, Steve. So you don't even have to buy Scientific American to check it out. Just go to www.siam.com and uh, scroll down, and you'll find the uh, the whole special section, the special report entitled The Future of Exploring Space. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. In animal studies, the popular spice ginger shows some promise as a therapy for bacteria-induced diarrhea. Story two. Zebrafish have four stripes. And now researchers have figured out exactly how one of the four stripes forms from scratch. Story 3, Sputnik's radio transmitter sent signals back to Earth from its launch in 1957 until July 31, 1969, just a few days after Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And Story 4, cockroaches learn better in the evening than in the morning. Time's up. Story 1 is true. Ginger did appear to prevent bacterial diarrhea in animal studies. The work was published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Diarrhea is the leading cause of infant death in developing countries. Almost 400,000 people die of it annually. A particular compound in ginger called zingerone appears to block the toxin produced by the strains of E. coli that cause diarrhea. Story 2 is true. Researchers have traced the complete development of one of the four stripes in zebrafish. They used time-lapse photography of developing embryos of a normal and a mutant zebrafish, as well as genetic analysis, to figure out how the fish got its stripe. The work appeared in the journal Development. Such studies are useful in unraveling the secrets of development in general, which is a terrific thing if you're trying to prevent birth defects. And story four is true. Researchers studying memory and learning found that cockroaches couldn't learn anything first thing in the morning. Maybe they're just exhausted from running around your kitchen all night. For more, check out the October 2nd episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story three about Sputnik's beeps lasting until after the first moon landing is totally bogus. Because what is true is that Sputnik fell out of orbit and burned up in the Earth's atmosphere on January 4th, 1958. And the radio transmitter stopped sending beeps to Earth before that. It was after 23 days in orbit when its battery died. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including the blog, Ask the Experts, and the latest science news, all at www.siam.com. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.